You want to say? Okay. 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 So uh, let's resume. Next, I'd like to introduce Dr. John Turco. He's a clinical professor of medicine here at Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. He also runs a trans. He's an endocrinologist and runs a transgender clinic here in Lebanon. And um, I will let Dr. Turco introduce his guests, which are seated in the front row. Thank you all for joining us. And um, yep, you're, you're, it's all yours. All right. Well, listen, it's a real honor to be here, but it's really exciting because I've been uh, involved with the care of transgender individuals since uh, 35 years ago. And about 34 and a half years ago, I often thought that an incredibly key group of individuals are school nurses. And I used to interact with school nurses, and they would say, oh, you know, I know a couple of kids in my class who kind of have gender nonconformity. Uh, and, and so I realized, and I'm really going to be uh, interested, the second half of this presentation, to use a term that you're hearing a lot, flipping the classroom. You people out there, I want to hear from you, we want to hear from you, just as how we, what you need in order to be the ally and the protector that I think you can be for gender nonconforming individuals. And I know it's not an easy road path for you to take, so I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts. What I'm going to do is I assume that some of you are, know a lot about transgender uh, medicine or individuals. Some others don't know a lot. So I'm going to kind of go through this very quickly. Can you hear me okay? And then I'll introduce some of my, the most important part of a panel. We had four or five people, but life gets in the way, and a couple of them, one of them's picketing down at the Conquered feet. You can't hear me. I don't have any control. Oh, wait a minute. Let me make sure I turned it on. I thought it was turned on. No? How about now? Better? Let's see. I need help then. Somebody, I need help to turn up the microphone, and I'll talk loud until we get some help. Got it back there? Okay. So, the title of this is, Why Should Can Be the Role of the School Nurse to Help Support, Protect Elementary School Students with Non-Conforming Gender Identities? Uh, I just want to turn you up a little. Yeah, that's what they were saying. And this doesn't seem to want to work, so I'll do this. So I'm going to first start about what do we mean by sex, okay? Because ever since we were kids, and you're passing out forms all of the time to students to check sex, M or F, okay? That can be confusing. Biological sex, really we talk about sex hormones, X and Y chrom chromosomes, which then can send signals to our undifferentiated gonad. All, we start off in utero with an undifferentiated gonad that could become an ovary or it could become a testicle. And the genetics involved in the X and Y chromosomes are what tell and signal that undifferentiated gonad to go ovary or testicle, and then to make either estrogen or testosterone. That we could call biological sex. Phenotypic sex is what our genitalia look like. If I took, and I promise I won't, if I took my clothes off, <laughs> you'd probably look at me and you'd probably say that he looks more male than female or somewhere in between. That's phenotypic sex. Next, we have sexual preference. Totally different concept. And that's to whom you are sexually attracted. If uh, you expect me to show you 25 slides about what leads to sexual preference, I don't have one slide because we really don't know. 
if somebody's attracted to males, females, or both. Okay, that's sexual preference. Then we get to gender identity. And there's only one test that I know that can determine gender identity. What's that? Ask the individual, okay? And it's totally separate, although you know, you know as well as I that most people, biological sex seems to indicate the much more likely phenotypic sex, and the phenotype tends to determine uh, the gender identity, but certainly not always. So gender identity. One's gender is usually assigned. Now, how did all of you get your gender, and when? Yeah, probably at five seconds of age, whoever delivered you looked at your phenotype and said to your mother, you got a beautiful little boy, or you got a great little girl. I bet you 50 plus percent of people now, they have their gender assigned in utero because they get ultrasounds. So that's an assigned gender. Uh, and it's determined by the phenotype sex. Many babies, are, okay, I won't repeat myself here, you can read. Most children uh, can affirm their gender, and that's the other term, not assign, but affirm their gender and verbalize it by the time they're two or three years old. They'll start to recognize themselves as a two or three year old. How many, uh, how many of you agree with that with the kids that you've had? I mean, early on, a kid you know, can't tell you he's a boy or a girl, but two or three, most kids start to you know, have that feeling in their, inside themselves if they are boy or girl, or, or maybe somewhere in between. Okay, gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is when one has hyper-awareness or discomfort of one's gender. Often when one's gender expression or other body parts do not match the affirmed gender, this individual can experience this dysphoria. Now I want to make it a point that gender dysphoria doesn't mean that transgender individuals have a psychiatric disorder. However, they certainly, because it's not easy necessarily in our society, you know, to be a transgender individual, they can get dysphoric depression, anxiety, and so forth as a result of that. So that's an important uh, issue to remember. And, uh, and I'll mention this book at the end. I took these definitions uh, from a, a really excellent book if you want to pick up a little paperback written by a Dartmouth uh, graduate student that was here a couple of years ago uh, that's worth reading. Um, one thing I would say is don't get thrown off by the vocabulary. These names change. If you were on the West Coast, there would be some different terms. So if you hear somebody who's talking to you about gender nonconformity or a transgender individual, and they use a word that you're not sure of, it's not only appropriate, it's mandatory that you say, wait a minute, what do you mean by being genderqueer? Or what do you mean about being a trans male? And so forth. Because it's important to communicate and understand, and it's hard for us as medical professionals sometimes to not admit that we don't understand a term. We don't want to look stupid. Believe me, trans individuals are used to realizing we're ignorant, and medical professionals, many of them are ignorant about a lot of these issues. So they're more than happy to help educate us. Now, you could say, well, you know, if we talked about X and Y chromosomes, we could understand a little bit how they influence uh, differentiated, undifferentiated uh, uh, gonad becoming a testicle or an ovary. We understand how estrogen or testosterone can cause our development of our external genitalia. But how do, what, what is gender identity? You know? And there's been an ongoing battle about whether it's nature or nurture. 
On the nurture side, there was a guy named John Money from uh, Baltimore uh, who was a psychologist that said, uh, and his feeling was that little babies tend to get uh, brought up behavioral-wise as a girl or a boy depending upon their phenotype. So you find out at five seconds of age that you have a little boy, all of a sudden the blue blanket, the baseball versus the baby dog gets thrown into the crib. And so he says kids learn that role. So that would be that they're nurtured into being a, a male or female. On the other end of the spectrum, is, it, is this nature? Is there some hard wiring, polygenic? Uh, maybe influenced by nurturing a little bit, but a lot of this is hardwired. Hard we don't know. And, and the pendulum has swung back and forth. John Money and the nurturing argument in the 50s and 60s up to the 70s seemed to be winning the day. However, since then, there have been some that we just don't have time to go into, some situations where it looks like there's a lot of hardwiring genes involved. Now, I've always had trouble with this concept, but let me try this. I'm simplistic, so I was thinking of the, another kind of set of assumptions that we assign at birth. I think to some degree, we assume babies are right-handed. And when babies learn how, to, you know, learning how to eat, you probably put the fork in their right hand. The baseball glove, your first one you buy for the one-year-old is on the left hand so they can throw. And so we assign right-handedness. This is a little bit of a stretch, I know. Uh, but then by two or three years of age, some of these individuals start to use their left hand a lot, and we start to say, oh, maybe this kid's left-handed. And the affirmed left-handedness is decided by the kid, and they start using their left hand, and we make an easy switch to that kid's left-handed. To some degree, gender identity, I think, is like that. Okay? I think there are individuals, we don't understand how, their phenotype doesn't match their gender identity. By two or three, they give us strong signals that at least they're having these feelings that are challenging that. And uh, in many of the, and we'll talk about the fact that not everybody that has these non-conforming gender thoughts as two or three-year-olds will end up being a transgender adult but some of them certainly will be. Okay, so hypothesis. I've talked about that nurture, uh, nature. Uh, but I would say right now, the preponderance of information presently suggests that gender identity is a consequence of a combination of nature and nurture. But I would say this, that I think nature plays a much bigger role than we used to think in the past. And I, I have one quote that I always remember. is a, a transgender individual said to me, Doc, I chose to start hormones, but I didn't choose to be a transgender individual. That was something that was in me from as long as I remember. Uh, and as, as you all got it right on the quiz, you didn't know you took a quiz, but it was an oral quiz, only one way to determine a person's gender is to ask that person. Now, gender identity. Here's, here's a, a little bit of a change in that, um, can anybody tell me what a cis female is, CIS? Any cis females in the audience? Okay, okay. So, chemical structures. You have hydroxy groups or whatever. If they're on the same side of this molecular formula, that's a cis molecule, same side. If there is a hydroxy group on this side and on that side, chemists would say that's a trans molecule. And we've stolen those terms. So if your phenotype, what's down south, matches your gender identity, I'm a cis male. 
For those of you who are women who have female genitalia, you're cis females. That's a very binary look. When I was growing up in Melrose, Massachusetts, kind of blue collar, middle class, it was simple. There were boys and there were girls. Okay. Now, I, when I started to see individuals that were trans, I realized, no, there's a trans males. And a trans male is a uh, somebody with a phenotypic female genitalia whose gender identity is male. So that person's a trans male. Conversely, there's trans females. Again, somewhat of a binary look. And if I gave this talk five or six years ago, I probably would have stopped there. But lately, and my colleagues can maybe later on tell me about this, because I think for younger kids, they understand this a lot better than some of us old timers, that they're looking at gender as more of a spectrum. It's not, it's not a binary male or female. It's not even trans male and trans female. There's a whole spectrum in between. And um, the spectrum, you know, you hear terms of agender, androgynous, gender queer, gender fluid, masculine of center, and many, many, many more. So one term you can have for this kind of spectrum is gender queer. Some of the old timers in the audience, and I won't ask you to, you know, I don't know what the age is. Queer was a very bad word when we were growing up, a really pejorative word. That's changed, and if it's used, especially by individuals in the transgender community, it can just talk about this kind of spectrum and fluidity, gender fluidity, that they look at their gender. Okay, so this is uh, an example of that. This is kind of a transgender umbrella, and it has a lot of different terms underneath it. Outside here are the cis males and cis females. And the only thing I would point out is that this isn't only happening in the United States. There are, in uh, First Americans, Two-Spirit is a group of individuals in the first American, Native Americans, that um, have uh, transgender feelings that are doubly blessed. And they're actually elevated to some degree in, in some parts of that society because the spirit uh, was able to give them both male and female qualities. Uh, over in India, the hijra are, is another name for individuals like this. So this is something that is occurring uh, across, you know, across the world, not only in our neighborhood. Okay, anybody see this in National Geographic? Uh, this is a wonderful, wonderful explanation of all of this. And then Katie Couric, I think, followed up, and there's an a online um, two-hour thing on transgender. This is really very helpful to help try to get educated and understand about this. But it's Rethinking Gender, an excellent discussion that talks about this gender fluidity. Um, so I would recommend that if you have a chance to take a look at that. I think it's online now. So one other point I want to make is that some people, a few of my colleagues have said, oh yeah, I've seen a couple of trans patients, so I know how to take care of them. They're all the same. That is not true. I just, like, none of us are all the same. Okay? And so I want to point out to you some of the variations. Age of awareness of gender nonconformity. You know, it's often early. I'll say to patients in their 20s, when did you first know something was different about your gender identity? And they'll say three or four. I was jealous of my brother because he had a penis, and I wondered where Mayim was. Um, but others won't remember back that far. Um, so it, one thing that can come like a freight train down the tracks for somebody who is trying to figure out or have some kind of gender non-conforming thoughts is the big P, puberty. Puberty can be 
a not so pleasant experience for a trans individual because all of a sudden, as many patients have told me, their body starts to play tricks on them and to betray them. So that's another time when you might see that, but occasionally even later on in life. So the age of figuring out uh, that one is, has uh, some gender identity, different feelings, can be anywhere from young age to later. Very often parents will t uh, tell you, some mothers will say, I knew from the first year or so that you know, the way my kid looked at his or her gender was different. Just who they played with, what they played with, how they played. That's kind of a gender role, but at least it gave them some <coughs> uh, thought about that. Um, but what I will say is the biggest difference that have occurred, uh, and Cassidy will maybe talk about this and Kalis can, can tell if it's true, is this thing here called a computer has made all the difference in the world. Because 20 or 30 years ago when I used to see individuals, many of them said, you know, I had never heard the word transgender until I was 30, 35, and I happened to see something on TV or somebody gave me a book and all of a sudden it snapped. Now, kids can identify and parents can identify this information much, much earlier. So as a result, there is absolutely no doubt that we're identifying kids at an earlier age. Just because kids are becoming aware of this and can, can um, kind of visualize and understand some of the feelings they have and put it into the appropriate context. Deciding to act is also different. Um, once they figure that out, there's a lot of decisions that have to be made as what to do and when to do it. Part of it is how, younger kids, how supportive parents are. It has to do with if you can afford the treatments. Uh, it can afford, uh, it depends on what community you come from. Kids are very, uh, you know, very able to sense when and they may be in danger if they have certain activities or, or they portray themselves in certain ways. But as there's more and more role models out there, you'll start to see individuals acting in, uh, you know, acting in an earlier and uh, more definitive way. And all, often some of the individuals sense that their parents or society doesn't want to hear about this and will suppress it, suppress these feelings. And that can often lead to significant gender dysphoria, uh, anxiety, depression. You'll read about one thing that is very prominent in transgender population is not only depression, but suicidal ideations and suicide. And very often, that's due to the fact that somebody has these feelings and they can't act on them. Uh, so let's move on here. And then actually acting kind of on a similar thing, somebody uh, may start to see a counselor, they might start on hormones. Uh, there are some individuals who have kind of non-conforming gender ideations, and they'll say, I don't need hormones. I mean, I, I have different feelings about my gender, but I don't need to go on hormones. Certain group of them, however, will want to go on hormones to have physical changes and usually also some psychological changes. And then surgery, many patients will say to me, yeah, I eventually would like, people that started hormones would like to get surgery, but I'm not sure I'll ever be able to afford it. That's changing a little bit. 20 years ago, most of them would say to me, I'll probably never get it because I'll never be able to afford it. Now with insurance getting a little bit better, individuals are thinking about surgery uh, earlier. But I just want to point out to you that everybody's story is different. And there are going to be kids who uh, come out very early on in life. There are other kids that are going to be later on. And some, I, I remember the oldest patient I saw was a 76-year-old rabbi who knew about this when he was 15 or 16 in New York City. And psychoanalysts tried to kind of convince him to 
put that behind him and not to be a trans. And he put it behind him, got married, had family, and he came to me at 76, not very healthy, and said, Dr. Turco, I want to do one thing. I don't want to live this lie any longer. I want to transition before I die. And then he looked at me and said, and you better hurry. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, I don't want to uh, belabor this, but this is a, uh, a transgenic uh, uh, survey report from 2010 that actually asked LGBT individuals what sort of care they got from us, medical professionals. You know, we're such a noble part of our profession that we're, you know, we're opening, welcoming. We have wonderful reception offices where people always feel welcome. Well, here's, here's what we found out. That uh, they had significant hurdles to accessing health care, including downright refusal to, to see the patient, 19%. Uh, harassment and violence in the uh, medical setting. You know, there are some people that go in, you know, obviously... Uh, is presenting as a female, name hasn't been changed yet, it's, you know, Harold, and the person will yell out, Harold, where are you, Harold? Harold, you must be hiding somewhere out there in the room. That's sort of harassment that happens all too frequently. Unbelievably, 2% uh, were victims of violence in the doctor's office. Lack of provider knowledge. This is, hopefully, and this is one of the reasons I'm glad you, you invited us to come and talk to you, is uh, lack of... Uh, uh, provide a knowledge about this whole situation. In my first 10 years of practice, uh, you know, my patients educated me. I can honestly say I went to a good medical school. I never heard the term transgender. I got out in 1974. And, uh, you know, patients had to put up with that. I think right now they're fed up with putting up with ignorance, and they expect us to know at least something, which I think is appropriate. Okay. Oh, interesting, too. What they found in this questionnaire, if medical providers were aware of the patient's transgender status, the likelihood that the person's experience uh, for discrimination would actually have been increased. That's something we need to work on. Uh, reported high levels of postponing medical care. I hear this all the time from my patients. Patients say, you know, I just don't want to go to the emergency room because I don't want to have to have this talk. Well, what do you mean? Well, your, birth, your, your medical records say this, and you're going by this name, or if they have to get examined, they have to explain there's a discrepancy in their phenotype. It's easier just not to go. And, you know, I can, I've heard of a few of my patients who have gotten into real medical problems because they've just denied the symptoms and haven't gone on. Over a quarter of the respondents misused drugs or alcohol specifically to cope with the discrimination that they faced. And a staggering 41% of the respondents reported attempting suicide compared to 1.6 of the general population. So, I'm getting near the end here, and then we're going to flip the classroom, so don't, get, don't fall asleep yet, okay? Uh, so what about gender nonconforming uh, children in school? So there is data to show that bullying is incredibly increased in these individuals. Um, there's a lot of gender dysphoria, depression, anxiety that these kids manifest. Depression, uh, there are issues like the bathroom issues, you know. Uh, we can maybe talk about that. Puberty, as I say. Puberty, when that hits, can, can magnify all of these feelings and really bring it to a head at that time. And there's many, many, many other issues that can come up in a school setting. Uh, so... Uh, gender nonconforming children. I just want to give you an overview this day and age of where we as endocrinologists and uh, pediatricians would look at how, what 
is available and what should the usual trajectory be in the best of all situations for a gender nonconforming uh, child. So long-term outcome, and I, this is important, long-term outcome of non-conforming children in elementary school, most will leave behind the gender nonconformity. Certainly kids that are gender bending uh, and have some gender nonconforming actions in second, third, fourth grade, probably the overwhelming majority of those individuals will go on to not become a transgender individual. Okay? There is evidence to show many of them will, will end up as adults to be gay or lesbian. However, there is certainly a, a, a percent, and we'll talk a little bit about the incidence of transgender. Certainly those individuals at two or three that are gender nonconforming, some of them, this will be a persistent, and especially for those kids who have an intense and persistent transgender feeling is, is three and four and five, six years old, that will often persist. And as somebody pointed out, if you talk to a little kid and the kid says, I would love to be a female versus I am a female, that's the group that this will probably persist. And this is one of my colleagues, Dr. Ben Bow, who's also involved with our clinic. <laughs> now, what about the incident? I want to talk to you. And you might say, hey, I'm never going to see this. I'm going to see Lyme disease more common. There was just electron Lyme disease, Ben, <laughs> than this. Well, you know, the numbers, when I first started, people were talking about 1 in 100,000, 1 in 10,000, and so forth. And the problem was that they were being counted at places that specialize in taking care of transgender individuals. The overwhelming majority of transgender individuals weren't seen in these clinics. And this is from the Netherlands and other places. Um, so I can give you a, a, an estimate from my experience. I had been director of the college, Dartmouth College Health Service that took care of Dartmouth students for the last 30 years. And as an endocrinologist, I started to see transgender students coming to Dartmouth or transitioning when they were at Dartmouth. And in the last five or six years, in any one year, there was at least five or six students, graduate students, students who were transitioning. There's a total of 6,000 students. So let's say five or six, and I must say in the last year or two, it's probably gone up to eight or nine. So I say, at least at Dartmouth, it's one in a thousand that's a transgender individual. There's some other data that's been presented lately that had suggested that maybe it's as high as one in a hundred. This is not that uncommon. Uh, so you're clearly, I'll be interested in your experience when, when you open up here and talk about whether you're aware of kids that you would say, oh, I think that kid definitely has some gender nonconforming um, aspects and how many of them you see in, in your schools. Uh, so uh, gender nonconforming children elementary school. One of the things that need, uh, need some protection from bullying. Uh, watch for depression and anxiety. Uh, may need uh, some special attention as far as counseling. Uh, I would point out this too, that it, there is an interesting overlap. If you look at the autistic spectrum and the transgender or the gender nonconforming spectrum, they're certainly not the same, and I don't know if one is connected to the other, but there is an overlap. And there seems to be a higher percentage of aut uh, kids on the autistic spectrum represented in the non gender nonconformity uh, group. And conversely, those individuals that are transitioning seem to have a little higher incidence of autism than you would expect. So that's another thing that you could be aware of uh, in school. As a child enters puberty, so what I would say is pre-puberty, I think we should be aware, identify, try to support in the school system. Parents should be supportive. Maybe the kid needs to have some counseling, maybe, maybe not. 
but try to just watch this. As the kid gets close to the puberty, as I said, that's the potential locomotive coming down the tracks. Though that's a time when if a kid has intense and persistent feelings, probably the last thing in the world is for that individual to go through a puberty of their assigned gender and not their affirmed gender, as we talked about earlier. And so believe it or not, some people are saying they were playing Mother Nature or uh, whatever. There is ways of giving those individuals an injection or even some pellets that suppress the pituitary, which actually triggers puberty, so to suppress it. And we've already used these drugs for kids with precocious puberty, four, five, six-year-old girls who started to have periods. These medications have been used for years to suppress puberty. So Tanner two, meaning when the first signs of puberty, a little breast budding, our testicles starting to get a little bit bigger in male, that's a time if you have somebody who is persistent and intense about transitioning, and most of the time with support of parents, you could then suppress puberty, and then continue to have counseling, continue to watch the situation. Some of those individuals may leave that behind, and they may not end up being transgender. Uh, however, many of them will, and then at least the national guidelines suggest at around age 16, then it might be appropriate, then it would be appropriate to put those individuals through puberty that is uh, for their assigned, sorry, for their affirmed gender, okay, and start hormones to have them go through a regular puberty. Because you don't want to leave this kid, you know, uh, not going through puberty till they're 20, 25 years old, because that in itself is going to cause problems. Um, and there are medicines, and we can talk about them. Ben's an expert on these medications. And I think for kids especially, whether adults who want to transition need counseling is a controversial point. I think most of us agree for younger kids, especially the kids, but also the family dynamics, that having counseling is really helpful. So make sure everybody's on board uh, for those individuals. OK, so we talked about that. So. Here's where I'm going to start flipping the classroom. I'll first have some of my colleagues say a few words. But why should and can school nurses uh, do to identify, support, protect gender nonconforming children? These are all got question marks after them. Because my biggest question is, is this realistic? Or are you saying, what are you, crazy? There's no way I could do that. Uh, identify gender nonconforming students. I think you've probably already been able to do that. Hopefully what you've learned today and we'll learn today will help you more to think about this issue. Educate school staff concerning gender nonconforming issues. You know, kids want to feel safe, and these kids do not feel safe. And anything you can do within the confines of the school to acknowledge their presence and acknowledge the fact that, you know, this is a safe place is, is going to go a long way to making the kid feel more comfortable. Discuss with students the concept of gender identity. Tough one. I don't know. Do you have? Do you talk about gender at all? Uh, you know, little little boys and girls. I, I'm shocked. I have six grandkids, and when my two little boys, two of the boys, were three years old, I was driving in the car with one of them, and it was this gorgeous sunup. And I said, Tommy, isn't that a beautiful morning, Grampy? That's a girl's word. <laughs> I said, what? Morning? No. And I said, that's a girl's word. You don't use that. And I said, where did he get it? his mother? Is the most the biggest feminist in the world. Her father has been beaten down by the, the, the mother, <laughs> my wife, and him. So I, the kid got it at school, you know, but it was fascinating to me, and it came up a couple of other times that how gendered kids are, you know, they're pushed to these extremes. 
Okay, let's see. Uh, now, interact with parents of gender non-conforming students. Yeah, I'm going to meet with the parents and say, you know, I think your kid maybe is going to be transgender when they get older. I, I know that's hard. <laughs> I know that's hard. And, and I will tell you this, that I think parents are online and figuring it out. We have a parent here who has courageously agreed to talk about things, right? We didn't actually agree to that, but... <laughs> I'm here anyway. Yeah, here. Uh, but we should talk about that, because I really think there's a path, and we're more than happy to, to work with you to come up with some sort of curriculum or something, education. Uh, let's see. Other suggestions. Uh, so I would just say, are these suggestions realistic? What help would you need to accomplish the goals, these goals? Um, and these are some reference at the end. So before I do that, uh, I'm just going to introduce Cassidy Murphy, who might say a little few things that you feel is appropriate. And uh, why don't you come out around here so they can look at you, and then talk a little bit about what we've talked about. And then we'll Kayla's and her father. And then we'll open it up. And we're going to hopefully have you know, a fair amount of time to have some discussion here. And I like, here. Let me see if I can do it. I'll work on it. Go ahead, I'll stand next to you. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of hard to. Yeah, it is. The red light will come here. out. Here, put, put that on your left. Good morning. Uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, my name is Cassidy, and I am a woman who is transgendered. Uh, we talked a little bit about you know, trans women, trans men. Um, so here's where those things, um, the vocabulary changes a little bit. I am a woman who is transgender. I always put the woman part first because that's who I am. Um, I want to run over just a couple statistics that, just to get that out of the way. There is studies in the LGBT community, and I think that, that we're talking probably about one in a hundred, and, and those are pretty recent. Um, so why do I do this? Because I've been living full-time as a woman for quite a while. It would be easy for me just to go about my life and do what I have to do, and um, and things would be fine. You know, I mean, I've 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 gone through school, I've gone through uh, parenting, I've gone through, you know, now now grandparenting. Um, I do it because it matters, and I feel like if I can give back something, and through education, it's like that's like really important. When we look at, like, suicide rates among trans people, there's, there's studies that, like, 41 to 46 percent of trans people will attempt suicide at some point in their life. That, that's a lot, you know? The, the, the average for um, the population is 4.6. So that number is, like, crazy over the top. Um, as far as 
discrimination and harassment is like 50 to 59 percent in the workplace. Um, I would say that statistics of doctors either not wanting to deal with trans patients or just not being educated on it is probably higher than the number that you um, that you saw earlier. Harassment and bullying at school is 54 to 60 percent of those kids uh, at some point in during their education. I can honestly say that when I grew up, I didn't have the vocabulary. I didn't know what transgender was. I didn't know what transsexual was. I didn't know. All I knew is that I was different, and everything didn't make sense to me. And I grew up in an Irish Catholic family. I'm one of six kids, so that probably didn't help. Um, <laughs> you know, and uh, I had a, um, my father was probably not the most compassionate person in the world. Uh, and my mother was just trying to, like, run the circus. Um, so there wasn't, like, a lot of room um, for talking. And early on, you know, if I would play with my sister's toys, you know, Barbie would get snatched away and replaced by Tonka. So, you know, you kind of learned before even entering school what was safe or acceptable. Um, for me, knowing that I was different but not knowing what that was was just like, it was just confusing the whole time. And I remember at one point in ninth grade um, asking a dear friend of mine, I think I kind of liked him, but at that time we didn't go there. Um, if you ever wondered, you know, what it was like to be a girl, you know, it was just him and me, we were just hanging out, and he looked at me like I was purple. So that was the last time we had that discussion, you know, so, so you learn. So a lot of times you like overcompensate being a boy, right, because that's safer. Captain of my high school football team. <laughs> Um, we do that not because it makes us feel better, it makes us feel safer, you know? So that kind of stuff happens. 69% um, of transgender people will experience homelessness in their life at some point. And most of this is due to the fact that they, no one ever told them it was okay, you know? It was just never okay. Um, Society is coming around a little bit, and that's why I think a lot of trans youth are coming out younger. And thank God for that, because um, you know they can seek out the help that they need and those kind of things. Um, I don't want to take up too much more time. I will touch on puberty. Puberty was like the most awkward time <laughs> of my life. It was awful. Much better the second time around. Actually. <laughs> actually enjoyed it the second time around. The first time around, I was like, uh, I have a brother a year older and a brother a year younger. So we were like all together. I mean, our, our bedroom back then was like a big room that was like a bed, a bed, a bed, a dresser, a dresser, a dresser. Kind of looked like a military barracks, you know. Um, and my older brother, me, my younger brother. Um, yeah, puberty was like crazy. I ended up with a, a lot of swelling of my breast, which I was not only embarrassed about, but kind of excited about, not really knowing where I was going. Um, fortunately, I didn't end up with a lot of body hair, actually none. I mean, my brothers both have hair on their chest and stuff like that. I never got that, so thank God for that, because that would have been awful. Um, 
so it was weird being between these two boys, right? And yeah, and not a good time. Um, always because I didn't know what I was, what I felt was anxiety all the time. Um, I always felt anxious. I always felt scared. You know, um, school. You know, wasn't a safe place back then. This is, you know, I was in school 1966, graduated in 78. Um, in 78, uh, my older brother came out as gay, um, and him and his friend were walking down the street, and they got hit with a bunch of bottles from somebody passing by. So it wasn't even a safe time for um, gay people. So certainly it wasn't a safe time for me. So we just kind of stuck that away. So I spent, that was, that was, you know, school. School was just not a good thing. If there were people at the school at the time who were versed in that kind of what's going on, or at least willing to ask the questions or be supportive, uh, it would have made all the difference in the world. Um, trans people always remember their allies, you know? So whether it's a teacher, a counselor, school nurse, or whatever, um, it's important. It matters. Okay. And I'm going to leave it there, and so we get to the question and answer thing. We'll get into that. Kayla, do you Thank want to you. Come, come up here or sit there? It's up to you, and maybe about five minutes, and then we can get into the open discussion. Very little to really announce, but okay. Hi, uh, my name is Kalis. I am a trans woman as well. Um, I transitioned through high school. Um, I was in my senior year. Um, I would say honestly, I had a relatively easy time. Um, I was not raised in a house with strict gender roles. Um, my dad and my mom were both very, very supportive of everything, and they still are. Um, that's kind of all I really have to say. <laughs> yeah, do you want to join Kayla's and, and add a little bit to that? Because I think the school nurses are probably as interested to hear from the parents. Than... <laughs> Hello, I'm Michael, and I'm uh, Kayla's father. Um, the one thing I have to say um, through everything that we've been through is the school that she went through was uh, a very big part. Their uh, acceptance of the whole situation and uh, helping her with everything and helping the students that she went to school with understand. Um, I think that's what made it actually the easiest transition that a lot of doctors that we actually talked to are like, wow, I mean, you've got, she goes and sees a counselor and the counselor's like, why are you here? You don't really seem to have any issues. So she goes there and she chats with her every once in a while. And when we went and uh, we actually had the surgery um, done and uh, talking to other parents there, um, we were the only ones that went as a couple, my wife and I. And uh, that separation of parents, one accepting, one not, it's, it's really hard on a lot of people. So. And their communities, a lot of them don't support them in the schools. And that's basically what it comes down to. The schools are a very, very important part. And I, I just hope everybody realizes that. Well, that's a great transition. Now we got to flip the classroom. And we want to get ideas from you. Do you agree with this? Uh, I just want to read one thing from one of my colleagues that couldn't be here. I think they, the nurses, are a perfect position to get involved. Um, um, her, her and her partner have uh, presented uh, at Plainfield Elementary School, invited by Karen Heaton. Is Karen Heaton here? Uh, 
She wanted information and to expose the kids to the fact that trans people are pretty ordinary. Uh, school nurses are absolutely in a good position to advocate for trans kids and to present evidence. Yes, sometimes it will be put them in an awkward position, but that's true of all advocacy at times. So, uh, please, let's get a discussion going. Uh, we'd love to come out of this, Ben and I and uh, my colleagues, things that we could, you know, do to help, with, with help you, because we realize to some degree you're on the firing line. There was a question over there. And Ben, why don't you come down to sure. it? When you say your school was supportive, can you tell us how and what they did and that, that helped you? Or if also your dad, um, what the other schools, the other parents you talked to, what, they, what the schools did that were not helpful? Any advice you can give us? Um, when it comes to schools, I think that the biggest thing was that people were listening and I mean, I would say a lot of my teachers are probably pretty old, honestly, and it's obviously something that they don't. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's. Old like me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so it's definitely something that's new to a lot of them. And I think that a really big part of the teachers in my school was that they're very open minded so that they, they listened um, to what was happening and they were really trying to help me and understand. Um, I remember when I was uh, walking down for graduation. I was supposed to be in a purple gown like all of the men were, and I wanted a white one. And one of the biggest things is that my um, school principal actually sat down with me and talked to me about what I wanted. And I think that's really important is just really trying to listen and really understand and just kind of let them say what they have to say and just kind of help them talk it out. And uh, on the note of what I've heard from other um, parents, um, the bathroom thing is a very big thing. Um, it was never really a problem with Kayla's. Kayla's going whatever bathroom she wanted to go into at the time. But there was one parent that I talked to that her um, daughter was actually suspended for going into a boy's bathroom because she dressed as a girl. It was backwards. I know it's confusing. But nobody knew that she was actually a boy. And everywhere else she went, she wasn't allowed to go in the girls' bathroom. So she goes in the boys' bathroom, she actually got suspended. It's, it's things like that, and, and it's the, the lack of communication between the whole schools in general that actually leads to a lot of stresses. Yes? Could you tell us a little bit about the hormone therapy? For young kids, suppressing it, I'll let Ben yeah. do that. Yeah, so for, I'm, I'm Benjamin Bow. I'm an endocrinologist here. I helped start our adolescent program. Uh, we probably have close. I have 50 adolescent patients, and my colleague, Dr. Cheris, probably has an equal number. Um, so the hormone therapy for adolescents really is just to put puberty on hold. So that we don't intervene before there are any signs of puberty. And when the children are suffering from gender dysphoria at the time of puberty and those changes are apparent, we use hormone blockers. So we use medications that, just as, as Jack described, are used in cases of precocious or early puberty. So these are things like Lupron and Histrelin. Um, they've been around for 20 years. They're very safe medications. There are some uh, monitoring that obviously needs to be done, but these are very safe medications. They are fully reversible. Um, when we stop the medication, uh, all the effects will uh, wear off in approximately a year, so they're fully reversible. Um, and, it, and it's actually quite unusual for transgender adolescents to stop treatment. 
um, the data out of the Netherlands, you know, the Dutch were the first to institute treatment of adolescents, um, and it's been with great success. Uh, these, these adolescents and young people do very, very well. We have data to support that. Um, and with uh, little to no uh, harmful uh, consequences as far as from a medical standpoint. Okay, there are a few risks, but they are uh, quite small in my opinion um, and, and easily monitored for. So the medications we use are Lupron. It's an injection. Typically, I give, we give that every three months, um, and they need monitoring to make sure it's effective. Uh, there's also an implant. So if uh, you know, adolescents are really anxious about an injection, we can use an implant so that they don't have to have that, that type of injection. And that can go um, for a year or two. Two years, in my experience, yeah, sometimes even a little bit more. Um, so very safe medications. They do require some monitoring. Um, and, and of, of course, they need to be eligible candidates. We don't uh, use these medications lightly. We really need to see that an individual has gender dysphoria, that it's persistent. Um, but it is fully reversible. So you know, it's putting the brakes on, giving them more time to discuss this with a counselor, discuss it with their family. Um, yeah. So that's so keep going. I, I do want to get to, because I'm waiting 30 years to hear this, I want to see whether you think this is realistic. And I realize you all come from different communities. Different communities probably have different approaches. But what's unrealistic about some of the things that we're proposing as far as maybe the school nurse being the critical person to implement that into the school, into their school? But go ahead. We'll keep going with it. No, oh, yeah. I just had a question about um, the hormone suppression. That doesn't interfere with, it doesn't suppress your height or that? Yeah, so what happens is growth velocity decreases, right? Still, they continue to grow, but at a prepubertal rate, so a much lower growth rate. But there is still lots of growth potential, so that when in the future uh, most, if, if not all, of these individuals go on what we call cross-sex hormone therapy, but really is uh, hormone therapy of their affirmed gender, they will continue growth rate. And, and what we see out of, I can tell you anecdotally, and then more importantly out of large-scale data from the Netherlands, it's interesting that our transgender girls, transgender women, actually approximate the height of female, uh, females in the population when they've gone through pubertal blockade. And transgender men, male-identified individuals, are uh, very close in height to their male peers, their uh, cisgender or natal male gender peers, which is very interesting. Um, so don't look at it as, as we're making, you know, the kids are going to end up shorter because of this, no. What is the term of this Pubertal, so oh, so so the puberty blockers are used uh, typically just until we start hormone therapy. They're sometimes with transgender women. We actually continue them until they have an orchiectomy or lower surgery. It's sort of an individual case for a transgender girl or woman. For transgender men, we stop the pubertal blocker as soon as we start them on testosterone. And hormone therapy is. Uh, yeah, those are typically lifelong. I've had some patients decide for various reasons. A minority of my patients decide to stop hormone therapy. They don't change their gender, but they may stop hormone therapy. Typically, it's lifelong. And those medications will continue to suppress the pituitary, so it's not as if, if the person hasn't had surgery that all of a sudden the ovaries will stop working or the testicles will stop working. And these are the same replacement medications that we would use for a girl, for example, who doesn't have you know, Turner syndrome or some other condition where she doesn't have puberty. Yes. Mm -hmm. so, I know, but 
Um, you know, she's now um, a transgender, she's a transgender male. Um, and so this past summer what happened was um, when he came to, um, to camp, the mom had told us about it and um, basically, um, you know, um, dressed, dressed as a male and was in the bunk with the girls um, and, you know, um, and during school year um, identified as Tyler. Um, but then during camp, had again identified as Abby, yeah. um, and um, until she felt until she um, felt comfortable talking with her um, bunkmates about what was happening, um, and uh, sat them down and talked to them, and then once once everything felt comfortable, then was introduced to the male um, bunks mm -hmm. that. She, that we're now going to be where um, where she was going to reside next summer, and sat and talked with um, with them, and then we were able to That's tell the yeah. whole camp. So now this year, um, we'll return as Tyler to the boys' books. I, I think we're going to see that more and yeah. more often. But I would say that I think when Kayla went in to talk to the uh, principal, the principal was probably more anxious than she was to have that mm -hmm. conversation. Some of these individuals are remarkable individuals and families. What I worry about are the kids three or four, five, six years before that, when the parents haven't got a clue or they haven't bought in. That, those are when I think kids are incredibly vulnerable. And I'm curious if you look at kids, you probably look at kids all the time and say, I wonder if. And I, I, I wonder gender issues, how often you kind of suspect that. And it doesn't mean you have to do something overt, but maybe a little bit of special care to watch that person and to see if that person's getting bullied. Yes? Hi, so um, I'm from Vermont, um, so it's a little different. <laughs> um, but in my small school, it's an elementary school, there's three transgender children um, in a school with less than 200 kids. So um, Outright Vermont has been just really pivotal and really supportive community um, resource for for everybody, I mean, they have a website, but they also have panels that travel throughout Vermont. I don't know if they come to New Hampshire, but um, they've presented parent panels at our school, and they've had student panels at our school, and then they've just really advocated, educated, and supported our youth and our staff and our parents and community in general. And this is an elementary school? Yes. Uh, I, I can't I'll get you in a second. I just want to, how many of your schools have, I mean, it sounds like your school is incredibly progressive in having these programs. And I'm not surprised that if you have one kid transition and it goes positively, there may be a couple of others that, yeah, you know, would be. what's happened is some kids have moved from other places. Do other schools have any form of programs? Okay. Yeah. I would add that outreach for my, Outright. Outright Vermont, that, or GLAD, or PFLAG, or all those, they, they'd be more than willing to come to any of your schools um, and help you um, do that. Um, Can you? These people want to get that education out there. Yeah, we represent the three of us from Hanover High School, which really is late and blooming in education, and I honestly say it was student-driven from the Absolutely. student council, and it was two years ago that we all became educated as a staff because of the strong student council. And we have two females making themselves into males, transgender now, 
I don't think the parents are cooperating fully, and they're what we call really frequent flyers in our office. They're a lot of miles. Um, and sometimes I still don't know whether they want me to address that issue. What would you recommend we do? I mean, they come in really frequently. Um, I, I was probably a frequent flyer, you know, because I got to use your guy's bathroom, so that was a big deal, right? Um, the bathroom didn't feel safe for me, and at that time I couldn't go in the girls' room because that would have led to me probably leaving school um, and then have to deal with my father. So, yes, your bathroom was my friend, um, and we've moved the dial so far already and we just got to keep moving it there. I would say just ask them. Mm -hmm. You know? Is that what's really wrong? Because they can have multiple little minor complaints. Or, you know, and they might not give you an answer right mm -hmm. off, but if they know that that maybe they can, they'll probably be back to use your bathroom, <laughs> and, then, uh, and then you can talk to them about that. Now, a lot of the high schools now have the Gay-Straight Alliance and those kind of things, which are wonderful. You know, as school nurses, you know, Ask them if you can come sit in, say, you know, and so that, that you're visible to those students who are vulnerable. I suspect if you, if, you have enough, if you have enough reason to bring up gender with a student, it's probably a very reasonable thing to bring up in this day and age. And, and I realize its possibility is the parent could come in the next day and say, you, you tell my, me my kid's transgender, that, you know, no, it's a very common situation, and what I've observed, I just want to have that as, a, I, I think that's a conversation, I think, that's worth opening up, a lo as long as the school system and the principal and everybody is on board and is going to support people. And obviously, don't have that conversation alone, you know what I mean? Make sure you've got somebody there with you, if you're going to address the parents, because you don't know where they're at. You know, I just, um, last night, my daughter, who was like, my biggest support system in the world, her and my older brother, um, called me up a girlfriend of hers, little sister actually is her little brother, um, and is kind of all alone, he's 20 years old, um, so she asked if I could help, because even as a young adult, his parents have really shut him out, and this happens a lot. So, like I don't talk to parents alone. Make sure that you're versed with what's going on. Have a game plan going into it because you don't actually know what's going to happen. Yes. Um, I'd just like to hear what you have to say about a situation we run into frequently, which is the kids will identify as a, a different gender. They'll, they'll um, give us a name, a preferred name. Then the parents don't really accept that name, yeah. so we'll be calling the parents and using the kid's preferred name and get corrected yeah. by the parents and say, no, that's not her kid's name. And then you get corrected by the student because, <laughs> you know, yeah. So do you have any recommendations for those little sticky situations? Um, I would say that, honestly, I think the student's higher priority. Um, I understand parents are going to be mad, and nobody wants to deal with an angry parent. Same thing, nobody wants to deal with an angry customer, et cetera. But like, I think that making sure that the student feels that they have somewhere they can be themselves and feel like they can be them, like you know themselves, it's just that's way more important, I think, than necessarily just because the parents going to correct you, the parent will correct you. I mean, likely they're not going to like you know barge in there and be like super mad. So I would just kind of do whatever the student really wants. I think it's most important. Yeah, I, I'm going to have to agree with that. Uh... When it comes to schools, it's about the student. It's always about the student, no matter what. The parents may not like it. People in the community may not like it. It has to be for the student. That is their place. 
But there's some juggling going on, right? Because you want to be able to talk to these parents about what's going on and what you think is going on. And, you know, by using the preferred name of the student might, you know, create that friction going into that conversation. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is probably going to sound very pompous to say this, and, but I would suspect that if you really tease it out, your biggest responsibility is to the student. Yeah, well, we all have to walk, and there are other pa uh, parents that are going to make a big deal of it, but I think ultimately, you know, that's what I've discovered, taking care of individuals. There are a lot of parents that aren't happy that their kid's transitioning, you know, but I feel my biggest allegiance is to the, is to the student. Now, hopefully, you can barter and you can bargain and get, a and get the parents on board, you know, uh, but that may or may not happen, and that's why so many trans individuals end up homeless. It's amazing the statistics that we didn't talk about, but there's a lot of that. It is a fine line, and you want to bring the parents on board, and you, you know you really want a cohesive unit too. Here, there's one here, oh, way back here. Who was waiting? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Um, as nurses, we're very comfortable asking the most awkward questions that are out there. Great colleagues. Um, what is the supportive, politically correct way to broach that topic as sort of a screening, but also opening up a topic that, like you mentioned, we may not get it directly in the first time, but by merely broaching it, we've identified as receptive. I'm looking for some practical. I would, throw yeah, so with, I would ask sometimes, <coughs> how do you your gender identity, your gender? You know, just keeping it neutral. That, you know, that, that's what most pediatricians are doing, young pediatricians now, actually asking very openly with, with adolescents and even uh, younger individuals is just, how do you identify? You know, how do you describe your gender? And, you know, you can get a variety of responses back from that. And, you know, I think like, and we're all wearing this pin, so you guys at Dartmouth, people kind of know what that is, right? So there's, that, that's one thing. Another thing I would say is like, if you sit in on the Student Alliance Things. If you if you make yourself visible as somebody um, that is compassionate and caring, eventually they'll probably open up to you. Um, I don't think there's like you know there's not like a trick question to get them there, right? Um, it's whether they feel safe and, and whether they feel like that they would be talking to somebody that's going to um, keep their secret as long as they need to keep their secret, and you know making yourself available. Somehow putting yourself out there so that they can recognize you as, as that person. Yeah, I would definitely say that's most important. Um, I met with a counselor when I was in middle school, and um, I transitioned when I was 16. So actually, I expressed these feelings for probably about six years. And uh, I think the hardest thing was that there just wasn't anyone to talk to. So if you just make yourself easy to talk to, kind of try to, you know, get into it, it makes it a lot easier. Um, I definitely would say that that's. Yeah, most important. I had a really hard time talking about it with really anyone in middle school, and I think that it definitely just wasn't, like, super helpful. And I, and I think the other part is to get yourself really educated. I mean, a simple, um, you know, Google search, suicide rates among transgender youth, right? Boom, it's going to give you all kinds of information. And then maybe pass some of that information along to the staff, the teachers, the ones that see these kids. Also, well, this kid was doing really well, and also this kid is not doing so well. You know, what's going on? You know, and, and if they have a little bit of knowledge, they, they may be able to steer that student in the right direction. I would strongly suggest this uh, Trans Portraits by Jackson Wright. Uh, it's a wonderful book. He went around uh, the country and interviewed about 60 uh, 
transgender or gender fluid individuals and writes in a very understandable way using uh, anecdotes to, to demonstrate. It's, it's, he's a great writer and it's a great book. And then this gender revolution, uh, the National Geographic and the Katie Couric you might want to Google, uh, I forget what station that was on. HBO. National Geographic Channel, and you can yeah, get right. it. We watched it a couple of nights ago on Hulu. You can watch it. It's fantastic. It's the, by far the best single resource two-hour program you, you can get on this subject. A couple more questions, and then, yes, back there. Thank you. Um, I almost getting tired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were just stretching. I'm sorry. Thank you. I have a question because you talk about parent um, resistance. Uh, any transition. What about when you're in high school, and I'm a high school nurse, and you have that resistance with staff? Like you have staff that would refuse to call you then because your legal name is Susan. And so what would be a way, like as a nurse in my high school, that I can that's got to that's got to be a top-down approach. I mean, that's something that's got to be addressed by the superintendent, the principal. That you know, really, we, we should be recognized by nicknames and, and our preferred names. That seems to me unacceptable. How can you help a student yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think education has a lot to do with it. I'd like to think that in almost any school, properly educated, most people will be supportive. I mean, I really think. 20 years from now, 10 years from now, we're going to look back and th this whole situation is going to be normalized. There are cis males, cis females, trans males, trans females, somewhere in between, you know, they're all, you know, we're all similar. So I think what I would do is educate, you know, individuals. Then if you get more and more people that understand and are supportive, it becomes more difficult. There's always going to be a few negative people and bigots or whatever you want to call them, but they're going to be less willing to kind of put themselves out there. So I don't know, I think education, I mean, I mean, you're probably sick of hearing me talk. I bring in colleagues that have gone through, especially someone like Kayla's who just get out of it. I mean, that's how people understand and say, wow, that's, I understand this yeah. now. I would also say, I have a, a, a friend who is a nurse and was a school nurse at a private school for some time, and her, um, you know, number one mission every year before school started was, I'm not going to lose a kid this year. You know what I mean? And so... You know, that's where you're at. You know, you got to be like, you know, if I have to educate that teacher or if I have to go through the administration, then you got to do those things. Um, if that student is being called out by its, their teacher, you know, what happens in the schoolyard after, right? Because now all of a sudden, these kids who might be on the edge have permission to, to, to do things that are not okay. So, yeah, it, it, you know, your first concern is always the student. Yeah, I got a quick uh, thought. Uh, Right now, down in, in Concord, you know, they're doing the gender bill. Well, really, what it is is a non-discrimination that includes race, uh, ethnicity, uh, so forth. It doesn't include gender identity. And when you think about it, it's not the bathroom bill. Bathrooms are dangerous, but you know what the bathrooms are dangerous for? It'd be dangerous for Kayla's to go into a men's room. You know, <laughs> you know, it's not the other way around. So. Um, so it would be great to talk to a history teacher or somebody and say, can we start to talk about what this bill means and get people on board? Do you support adding that you want to just protect the rights of transgender individuals just the same way you want to do with people uh, who are African-American, people who are uh, gay and so forth? I mean, it's, it's crazy that's not included. And when it gets labeled as being the bathroom bill, it polarizes people. But this has so little to do with bathrooms. 
that, you know, it's just unfortunate. Also, 0% of trans crime, <laughs> transgender people committing crimes in bathrooms in the whole United States. Zero. Right <laughs> 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 back there. <laughs> Yeah, even if you disagree, if you just say vote no, if enough people say at least your rep is going to get an eye a feeling. Mm -hmm. And my feeling is probably the majority of people are going to support it. Yes. So and I, this is one of those educate me questions. You said before, Dr. Turco, that we all probably have known a child that we're mm -hmm. wondering about. And we get <coughs> I think those are in that gender non-conforming. They're not playing the actual idealized roles that little boys or girls. All I can say is, I, I would keep an eye on it. Is this kid coming into the nurse station in tears? Is the person getting in trouble? Is the person acting out? And so forth. You, could, you know, maybe, I think it'd probably be legitimate for you to ask the teacher, how's he doing class? And, you know, if you get some information, that's what I want. How do you interact? That's a hard one. But I would like to think you could have a conversation. Gee, Joey, you know, you've been having trouble. What sort of issues have been coming up? And I think a lot of individuals have said to me, given the opportunity, I remember one, uh, one of my colleagues has said, I've been waiting since third grade for some doctor or medical provider to ask me about my gender. They, they may not feel comfortable to bring it up, but in the confines of a room that's closed, that maybe you have some visible uh, things there that make them feel welcome, I think you could bring it up. And you know, Personally, if the parents got upset with you, uh, I would say that as part of the job. I mean, I don't think you're going to push it too far. I think just bringing it up, the kid may say nothing, but three weeks later the kid may come back and say, you know, can we talk a little bit more? I don't know. I, I, and, and not always, you know, so certainly we don't want people walking away from this thinking that uh, anybody that displays some cross-gender identification, play, behavior, dress, or whatever is automatically a transgender or gay or... You know, we don't know it. Time tells us this. And you'd say most won't be. The probably the majority, or, or many won't be. We, we don't have good ways of getting the statistics. So any statistics you read on this, um, as far as that issue, it's very hard to tell because many children will explore a little bit. We know that's healthy, normal childhood. Yes. So it's, it's time. As an elementary school nurse, I'd like to ask the panel, is there something that you wish you would add in elementary school that would have been supportive helpful? Um, I wouldn't say that I even knew what was happening <laughs> um, in elementary school. If I wasn't until I watched a documentary on trans, how someone was transitioning in a documentary, and that's how I figured out what was happening. Like I said, I grew up in a house that was really not gender conforming. I think we knew before she did. <laughs> yeah, I think everyone knew. <laughs> to be quite honest with you, I, I believe we knew before she, before she did. I think the, the best thing is, is that you can do is just create that safe environment. Okay, so, you know, children are going to act out all different ways, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, is this child getting bullied for some reason or, you know, and maybe dig a little deeper, but if, if they have that safe place or that safe person that they might open up to, you know, elementary school is, you know, it's, it, kids, <laughs> little kids, 
you know, they're not going to really understand what's going on all the time. So, so to push you a little bit, before you turned the light off uh, and went to bed, you and your wife, what, what did you do to pursue that? Well, when, when, uh, we, we, we started having children. One of the biggest difficulties when she decided to become um, transgendered, when she, she realized that she was, um, there's a lot of pressure for parents for that situation. Because when you go around and you're talking to your friends and you're saying, I've got all boys, I've got all boys, my boys, I've got pictures of my boys sitting on my desk, and then all of a sudden, you have a girl. How do you explain that? So it's not that a lot of parents don't accept it. It's, it's hard for them to rewind the clock and let other people know that. Because not everybody's accepting. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a blue collar factory worker. And uh, I've been there for almost 12 years now. And they've all known that I've had boys, all boys. So now when I say, oh, I, I'm, I've got to go to Pennsylvania and point with my daughter, they're like, you have a daughter? I'm like, yeah, I've got a daughter. And some of them know the truth, and some of them just assume I never talked about my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you have to realize that when you're, when you're talking to parents, that sometimes they're upset not because they're... Their, their son or daughter is transgendered. It's because they don't know how they're going to deal with their own lives. Exactly. What it means to them. I mean, because it's a lot of work for families. It is. I mean, I'm still called he by half my family. It's That's just, it's a lot of work. It takes time. It's just... Yeah, I mean, I taught her how to change oil. <laughs> and work on cars and split wood. But for Christmas, she got holiday Barbie. She didn't get Tonka trucks. Yep. You know, she's always gone elaborate with the clothes and... and, and She's always done her hair and always liked makeup, and that's that's fine. You have to so, understand, parents are going to go through a grieving thing too. They've just lost a son, and it, until it, they can, that was the hardest part. Until was, they can realize that they gained a daughter out of it, you know. Um, but there's that process they have to go through. My wife and I, we still make jokes about it because when she was pregnant, she was like saying it was a girl the whole time. She was, <laughs> and then when she was born, when she was born. We gave her the name Kalis, which is a completely gender-neutral name. Nice. It just, okay, you couldn't have planned that out better, I guess. <laughs> yes, everybody Were can be so lucky. Were you and your wife raised in homes where it was acceptable oh, no. to be? <laughs> <laughs> in society, I think that the parents are brainwashed just as much as the children are as to what. No, I was, I was raised in a, in a very strict religious um household and, and my wife, they're a little bit more open, but they are Italian Irish. So that there's a big no no in that too. So um, just the circles that we've traveled in when we were growing up in in seeing new people and and how the world really is instead of just in these closed communities. Because a lot of the smaller communities especially have a really hard time with it because they don't see the world. Mm -hmm. They see what's around them. And if somebody doesn't fit in, they're shunned and they don't care why. So, and I, and I think that's where the, the school needs to step in and get that worldly view and spread it to the kids. And then the kids will bring it home and then they'll educate their parents. And that's... Be more socially acceptable. Yes. I can't tell you how many individuals, 18, 19, 17, 16, are coming in and there's a parent sitting next to them. And I'll say, what do you think about this? And they'll say, 
And this has happened a half dozen times. And friends kids my eyes are probably crying out and say, you know, I just love my kid. Right. I just want them to be happy. But usually it's the kids, right? I think the parents belong. So. I, just, I just had a question. Okay. Um, and then we'll go to you. Sorry. How did the two of you end up speaking to your parents and lying to your parents? I know you said you probably <laughs> I know. <laughs> yep, I wrote a no. I wrote... somebody like us on your behalf, you know, or you did all uh, yeah, go ahead. yeah, I wrote a note to my parents. Um, I wrote a note to my parents when I came out as gay, I, and then I wrote them a note for this as well. Um, yeah, I mean, coming out to my parents is honestly pretty easy. I mean, it was a rough couple weeks, because I think they're honestly just like, wait, what? <laughs> but, uh, no, I just wrote a note. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't really have much of a relationship with my father. Uh, he chose to kind of walk away from our family, but at some point. Um, I kind of cowered it a little bit with mom. I took my older brother. <laughs> I took him with me. Um, and she was not, um, she wasn't angry or she wasn't any of those things. She was just like, okay, what do, what do I need to do? What, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. So, but I didn't, I didn't just, I didn't, I took my brother. <laughs> I was like, Tom, you're coming with me <laughs> to talk to mom. Do you think it's getting easier in this day and age when you, people are just more aware of this? You know, uh, Caitlin, Jenner. Caitlin Jenner. Jenner, you know, Caitlin Jenner, by the way. I, I thought it was great. I had about three or four people that said to me, kids that said, I had my parents watch this and it made all the difference in the world, just being exposed to it and seeing it, so. I don't know. I would say on that, I'm um, not a huge fan. But, <laughs> Me um, <laughs> Second half. <laughs> because, uh, you know, uh, most trans people don't have those resources. You know, wouldn't that be wonderful, right? Yeah, they don't I, have money like that. I, <laughs> I took out an equity loan against my mortgage. You know what I mean? So... Um, Caitlin, I don't know, called up her PR person and said, set this up for me. You know, so, yeah. It, it, it's definitely <laughs> it's exposure, excessive. exposure, but not realistic <laughs> yeah. in a lot of ways. I mean, it's nice that the exposure is there. I, again, I really agree. Like, her journey is not anything as hard as, I mean, yes, it's hard because it's still, like, gender dysphoria and it's a hard thing to go through. But I would not say it's anything near what most people have to deal with. I mean, I consider myself lucky, and I'm still, like, 15 grand in the debt so like <laughs> i mean people don't have it that easy and i think that that also kind of skews a little bit people yeah, think it's like just like for the 69 percent that were homeless at some point in their life right yeah uh, um, caitlin probably wasn't she probably had a couple homes to pick from so she was fine but that's where it comes important that uh that, that the parents in the schools are all on the same page the, the schools need to educate the kids and then the kids will educate their parents, and that's the circle that, that needs to be found. And you may have to educate the school, which is not an easy, you know, an easy thing to bear. All right, go ahead. So I feel like a lot of times our um, health forms are kind of the first introduction oh, to the clinic or school. Um, so from you guys' perspective, I'm wondering what you recommend, and then from you guys, um, do you feel, what feels good? Like, would you read it and you get to say, you not just check off male, female. Uh, An other box works sometimes. Um, yeah, I mean, you go into the emergency room, right? And you get this form, you fill out, and you're like, okay, yeah, this is not working for me, right off the bat. So you haven't even seen a nurse or doctor or anything else, right? Already things are not working for you. So, yeah, What's change the form. You know, it says sex, M-F. What does that mean? Who am I having sex with? Who am I having sex with? <laughs> <laughs> so even saying gender identity, 
and you can kind of find male, female, other. You know, I think there is a day we're going to see cis male, trans male, trans, you know. But I think... Facebook think, is doing it. Yeah, 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 Facebook's doing it. it. A lot of apps do it now. Yeah, at least... Just to point out to the authorities, when you play, it doesn't mean anything. I get a kick out of uh, politicians who are fighting over same-sex marriage. What are they talking about? <laughs> Who are they talking about? I don't understand. So, I mean, if there's another box and they check it, at least you can say, um, I noticed that you checked the other box, you know, and then maybe open up that dialogue that way. Or just leave it blank. Yeah, I would, I would leave, blank. leave the option and then like a line so they can write it in. <laughs> I hate going to the doctor and having them ask me a million questions about it. I mean, no matter where I go, I'd be Planned Parenthood and they're like, what the hell is happening with you? And it's like... I just want to be able to just check a box and just like not have it be a conversation. I think it's easiest. So I think we have time for one more question. Uh, I have an education um, like health question as far as um, I feel like our, our, I work in a high school. Um, we have four identified transgender students. Um, could be more. We do not have um, a sex box. So we don't ask six bodies. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> we don't have milk in milk, any of our health forms. We don't ask. Um, I, we have bathrooms that are not identified as for. So I, I feel like we've tried to do as much to support. Um, I know the problem we're having right now. Maybe one of the biggest questions is with athletics. Yeah. Um, and so transgender. Um, especially our trans males are not feeling really comfortable playing sports with the with the males, mm -hmm. and they still want to play sports yeah. with the females. Maybe because they're early on with their hormone therapy, or you know, they just don't feel comfortable. Yeah, yeah. I always thought that sports should just be co-ed, yeah. no matter what, at all. Because you know, there's there's the stories of the girls who want to play football, kind of thing. Like, I want to play field hockey, but like. It just co-ed. Everything should just really be co-ed because, like, it, the physical differences are there. I don't want to say they're so significant, especially at like such a young age. I guess I would just say. I mean, honestly, I I would just be like co-ed. Yeah, yeah, you raise a really important question. You know, I feel a lot of transgender adolescents, uh, children, really are are pushed out of and pushed away from athletics because of this. And that, to me, that was a really important part of my my life, and I know yours as well. Um, and it's a tough, it's a tough thing because it's, it's unfortunately, it's, it's not as simple as just, you know, everybody play nice, right? It's, and we say that once people are on hormones, that then they do have to play with the gender that, that they, you know, firm gender. Yeah, before hormone therapy. 16, 17 year old, there's a, there really seems to be not, clearly not every, everyone's different, but um, there's a real difference in a 16 or 17 year old male versus a trans male. There can be a lot of... I agree. Yeah. So maybe some co-ed intramural that. sports in your school would help. At least that gives them a place to, to go. Or just yeah. exceptions. Just kind of be like, hey, you want to play here? Play there. Right. Then you got to figure out the locker room thing. you got to figure out all those things, right? And we have had... I've, I've got more than a few students that have been able to successfully sort of you know, present their case, and we, you sort of you need a, meet, a medical support of, of sort of which team to play on and what's appropriate. And I have we've 
done some interesting things as far as their running track and they you know will be timed a certain way and, and um, it can work out nicely. I really think that we overplay the sort of unfairness card and, and size issues and things, but I think you're right, we want everybody to be safe. So I, but it's really important we, we not just blanket exclude them and, and discourage these adolescents from playing. Yeah, I think one thing that appears from the Supreme Court sending the case from the Virginia uh, bathroom bill back means that for a while anyways, state by state, this is going to be decided. So, uh, you know, we, I think we could concentrate in our state and I think the athletics were going to be decided and so forth. So how many people know the name of their representative? Okay, some homework. By the end of the week, find out who your representative is and at least consider reading the bill and just Google it and see if you agree or not agree and drop it. I have written my rep and I promise I'm going to do it because I, I got to walk the walk also. So anyway, hopefully you found this helpful. Uh, anything that you have ideas that, you know, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. We, we'd be more than happy to set up some programs or to at least carry on this conversation. Uh, but I really appreciate the time that you spent thinking about this important issue. Thank you.